Hey, we're still here at George Mason University. I'm here today with Dr. Ash Casey from Loughborough University in the UK. And we're here to chat about model space practice, but more in a conversational way. Uh, today, we don't have a specific paper to discuss, but um, I wanted to talk with Ash and ask him a few questions about how his thinking's evolved about models over the years. So, uh, and Ash was uh, one of the first people to record a podcast episode with me. and. Uh, Maybe because of that, it's the highest listened to episode because it's the first one. But every time people talk about models, the episode downloads increase significantly. So I think this is an important uh, topic and people are, uh, are interested in. So um, Ash, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's great to be here. I've, um, I've really enjoyed that first um it could have been a second podcast, actually. I think I don't think I was first. I think Goodyear may have been mm -hmm. first. I can't remember, but I think I might have been second. But yeah, models. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm a models man. So um, I think to uh, to coin a phrase that um, Shane Pill used in the in the in the Spectrum one, I'm a model nerd. Yeah. So he was a spectrum nerd or, or, or Brendan wasn't and I'm a, I'm a model nerd. So. so why, why is that? Like what, what originally just like hooked you into thinking about them, researching them and, you know, basically having a research line that revolves around models. Yeah. So if we go back to, um, 90, 2002, I was teaching in a secondary school in Yorkshire. I was uh, basically a, I was a fairly good standard teacher. I, you know, all the things I now talk about, about challenging, you know, you know, sports-based curriculum, business education and sports techniques, all that sort of stuff. That's what I did. I was in a um, selective grammar school. I, I, I ran sports teams. I taught about sport and, and techniques and, and did all that. And for a very long story, I, I found the motivation to do a master's degree. Um, and I signed up for a master's degree at Loughborough University. Um, and teaching on that master's degree were David Kirk, Kathy Armour, John Evans, Dawn Penny, Lorraine Cale, Joe Harris. Lara Zarito. I mean, you start talking about the 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 the, the people who were were what kind of inspired me. Um, Fiona Chambers and I were on the same master's degree. Um, and the first assignment was I was with Kathy Armour. It was a it was also we were doing auto ethnography, and it was a a past, present, and future assignment. So you had to talk about where you come from, where you were, and where you wanted to go. And so where I wanted to go was when I kind of first discovered cognitive learning, sport education, and I set up this process where I wanted to do it. So that was my future. So first module on the master's, what are you going to do? We then did a school-based intervention module. That was with Dave, David Kirk, and it turned out to be an action research study. First engagement action research, I didn't like it, which is bizarre given that I use it quite a lot now but I employed a sport education module a model in my school uh, supposed to be 11 weeks long I had a department pull the plug after five weeks because he didn't like it the so department you were working then at. I kind of went yeah 
and then I went underground. I took all my models-based stuff out of the whole curriculum and put it into just my lessons. And then I did creative learning, sport education, teaching, games for understanding, and kind of developed a curriculum that probably was 50% models-based. Mm-hmm. And that was because I couldn't, I didn't have any more lessons I could do, if that makes any more sense. Yeah. Um, that was my, that was kind of the, the prompt for quite a lot of the early research that I did um, around models. My master's dissertation was that, then my PhD was, well, I've kind of done some of this, but I want to do more, so I did more. Um, and then I've kind of then worked through that process over, well, I guess it's two decades now, but the actual stuff that the world knows about, I guess, is probably from about 2009 onwards. Mm-hmm. And so when did you write the papers? So we read we read your two action research papers in my analysis of teaching class because they do a smaller scale action research project direct throughout the semester. And I model kind of, we have some technical papers and then we have your actual, like this is what an action research looks like. And it's, I forget the title, but it's don't miss the forest for the trees that you were implementing cooperatively. Yeah, seeing, uh, seeing, seeing, uh, seeing, seeing the tree, not just the woods. Yeah, and so what point of your career did you did you do those? during your PhD or after? No, so that was, um, that paper was 2012, I think. Um, and it was, it was, it was looking at um, the kind of messiness of action research. So mm-hmm. some of the work out of Australia, Susan Granwell Smith, Nicole Mockler talks about the emancipatory, celebratory notions of action research. So I did an action research study and I'm now a completely new person and then this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it kind of misses what Cook talks about, which is the messiness of yeah. research and the, the, the way it was difficult and, and trying to kind of open a lid on the challenges and, and, and those. And that was the notion of seeing seeing the, the, the tree and not just the wood, is that you needed to see those individual lessons. and. Um, my biggest critique of action research is, and similar to models-based practice, is that there is no such thing as action research. You can't just say in a methodology, I did action research and then analyze everything at the end of the process to me. Mm-hmm. That's not action research, that's thematic analysis or something else. Yes. The action research to me is about showing those steps. So I talk about cycles within cycles yeah so that my whole phd was an action research study it was seven different interventions using different models across different ages and across two years but within that there was each of the seven cycles and with each in that was each of the lessons so every lesson then became had an impact on the way that i taught so to me action research is a fractal process so that each level looks the same as you move down through that fractal mm-hmm. but in lots of action research literature you don't see those cycles you see the end product but i want to know in action research is well you did that in lesson one you did that in unit one how did that change what you did next yeah yeah and that to me is the really interesting bit because that's the bit that's honest does that make sense it's yeah, the bit yeah, where absolutely can't turn around to 
teachers and say that pedagogical change is easy mm-hmm. and it's it's only emancipatory and it's only celebration there's some real challenges in there that you know when you move away from the way that you normally teach and that honesty is important because you know you, you, yeah, and, and knowing that process. So that's where the kind of that idea comes from yeah. and where that whole project comes from. So at Loughborough now, do your pre-service teachers, because so in the U.S., like I know if you go to certain universities in the U.S. that have certain researchers that do sport ed, like you go to Alabama, you're going to learn sport ed and TPSR. You go to, you know, somewhere else, you're going to learn a lot of meaningful physical education. Um, I know people from other universities in Virginia that have come to our master's program that they only learn the tactical games model and that's it. And we have a shorter period of time with our students and traditionally the U.S. has less methods courses than a lot of other countries that spend more time on actually teaching teachers how to teach. Um, So at Loughborough, are they learning all the models? Are they learning three models in depth or like, are they leaving as a teacher from Loughborough with one model that they know really, really well? Um, well, we, we, I mean, I run, uh, so I have a traditional kind of session on Twitter every day, every year where I run a sport education season in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, we take a whole day and we divide it up into individual lessons. And instead of teaching those across a block of work, I do them in one day. So, and prior to that, we do a games making session where they make up the game that they're then going to play in the sport education season. And we do some cooperative learning. We do some teach some ta- some ta- ta- tactical games, TTFU, some health based PE. But what we're really trying to do, or what the aspiration is, that I tend to teach a lot myself through models. So I tend to teach particularly through cooperative learning, which will be unsurprising. And it's those. Well, you know, can you find, can you create opportunities to do a little bit of this in the way that you do? You so we talk a lot about plenaries, and the main time at the end of a lesson, we tend to get Q and A. So Q and A is like the the way. Well, why did you do in this lesson? And then one person puts their hands up, and you ask the person who's going to give you the right answer. We talk a lot about how we might use think pair share or but it's together or just little strategies in there to get away from that process of just doing a hand raising exercise now to me if somebody is able to begin to challenge their pedagogy by looking at different processes then that's that's great that's a first step pedagogical change takes a long time a lot of a lot of students come in from um undergraduate degrees in physical education so we we're, we're now seeing um, probably teacher education starting, it used to be a four-year degree, a Bachelor of Education, they'd call it over here. There aren't many of those left, particularly in PE, I think there might be two or three. And they're probably more difficult to recruit to because student fees over here. And somebody could jump on and say, they're actually wrong, they're easy, we get loads of people. But the one at Bedford when I was there, that used to take on 70, now it takes on about 20, 25. So I'm suggesting that yeah. people don't necessarily want to commit at 18. I didn't. I did did a sports studies degree, even though I got onto a B.Ed. I got to about three B.Eds, but I 
decided to do sports study just in case I didn't want to teach. Now, I've never done anything but teach, but that kind of process. And I wasn't paying £9,000 a year to do it, so I suspect there's a challenge there. But some people are coming to us from undergraduate degrees in PE. There's lots of really good ones around around the UK. And they're teaching models-based stuff as well. So we're getting lots of support. Because ours is a one-year postgraduate course. We only have them in the university for 12 weeks. So to me, it's always about qualify as a teacher and then have aspirations for where you want to go. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's how do, what does teaching games for understanding look like when you are able to begin to evolve it, when you're beginning to use it. We're trying to give them ideas. And they go into schools and some mentors are, yeah, this is great. Teach us everything you're doing. Some are like, that's not proper PE. Yeah. But they end up having a conversation about, well, all the time, I try to say to them, you qualify to teach, and then you try to remember the type of teacher you want to be and think about the ways you can do that across the course of your career. And when you reach a position where you have increased autonomy over how you teach, remember the ways that you wanted to teach. So, yes, they get exposed. Yes, they see a lot of this stuff. The transition into school is the challenge, isn't it? So, because it depends on where you where you end up is it you know is it accepted like you said in your first action research project they pulled the plug in five weeks because it wasn't like the models were not something that people want to do and i think that here like in major metropolitan areas and the suburbs of them it is not uncommon like we have a huge school down the down the road from here and it's a middle school, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and they have 120 students at a time because it's three teachers, 40, uh, 40 each. So it's 120 students in the gym. And like, how do you how do you do that together? And and this school actually does a really good job, and they try to do like a sport ed unit, but that's because every single you know, person is on board and they're all agreeing to do that. But if you're the only person first or the last hire that comes in and says fresh out of college, you're like, Hey, I want to run a sport education unit. And they're all, how many lessons is this going to take? No, that's not how we do things here. Door closes. And it's hard to, hard to fight that change. If, especially if you're young. And this is one of the this is one of the I guess the challenges in in pedagogical change is that running a sport education season for eighteen lessons is really hard. It's so come out of that. I mean, yes. it's difficult as a teacher. It's difficult as a learner. I mean, one of the big messages that I came out of of mine is that when you engage in pedagogical change, you're you're not only learning to teach in a new way, but the kids are learning to learn in a new way. And we forget that process, that they, they've gone through school. 16,000 hours was what um, uh, Lorte suggested. 16,000 hours of how to be a teacher. And suddenly you're mm-hmm. chucking in for the, an hour a different way of learning, being a learner. And that's a challenge to them. And... Uh, Matt Curtis Smith et al. Hasty and um, Kitchen talked about watered down and, and cafeteria. And I've always been slightly ag- 
against that kind of notion that watered down is a bad thing. To me, it's an aspiration. If you do a little bit different, if you're a little bit different, change takes time. And they came out with they came up with another paper, same kind of idea about I think it was 2019-20. I can't remember. But at that point, they're saying, well, actually, the context is really important because sometimes all you can do is a watered down approach because of the context that you're in. Yeah. And that to me was a that's a that's a really positive step in terms of how we understand change. That actually model fidelity, and this is something that that is, will pick up is it's nothing to do with for me nothing to do with um, teachers. The teachers being showing model for that that fidelity has never been an argument that. I, you know, that we put down in that original paper, paper, paper in, two, in, in, two, in 2014. And to me, that stems from a lot of the stuff I've talked about, about with colleagues, Mikhail Kavenestat, Hukan Larson, and McPhail, with David Kirk, about nouning and verbing. Yeah. So to me, there is no such thing as sport education. You cannot just say I've done sport education. It's not a thing. Can't say you've done action research. You can't put a capital S and a capital E across sport education and say that is a thing. Every time it goes into a classroom, it's dependent upon the environment, and the teacher needs to be able to make those tweaks and those changes, and mm-hmm. needs to be adaptable for the young people they're working with, their experiences, the teachers' experiences, the practice architectures. So what is said about PE, what is done in the name of PE, and the kind of the political confines within the school or the district or the country around what these these ideas mean so watered down or cafeteria is perfectly acceptable as a step towards something else and i don't think it's it, it's not i'd like to hope that teachers are uh, you know teaching to me is an ethical process you have to teach to the very best of your ability but the very best of your ability in one place might be very different to the very best of your ability in another place. And we need to be con- cognizant of that and, and the local environment and local agency and, and how teachers are able to do those things. Can you, so, um, can you explain what you mean by practice architectures? Well, pr- practice architectures is a, is a, is a theory that um, Steve Kennis was working with. Um, I kind of touched on this um, probably early um, 2013, 2014. And, and the idea is that the practice architectures in a situation basically determine what can happen. So it talks about the sayings, the doings, and the relatings. So the sayings is, is what is historical, what is said in the name of PE, what is done. And this kind of links, I think you can link it to Kathyama's ideas about knowledge, what knowledge and, and what knowledge is valued within within PE. So what is said about PE, what is valued about PE has a huge amount of um, weight in terms of what you can do. Mm-hmm. So that whole statement is not what we do here. Right. I, mean, I remember when I was teaching, I've been teaching in the school I had been for 10 years and I, I wanted to I wanted to change what happened in a particular half term. Um, and uh, the head of, we had a head of boys and a head of girls in the PE department. And she said to me, Ash, you've not been here long enough to make changes like this. 
And my response was, I've been here for 10 years. At which point do I have enough time on the clock, enough miles on the clock in order to make changes? Um, but that's that very saying that, you know, and the expectations. So I'm working with a school locally who um, are a, seeking to adopt a models-based approach. And they're in year one, and they've decided to do it with the 11 to 12-year-olds, so year seven. And I was having a conversation with them. With, so I'm doing it as a, a research study. But I'm also, they asked me questions. It's kind of other, I, I'm not trying to direct their curriculum at all, and we can get onto that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But one of the comments they have from kids who've got older siblings is, when are we doing this? And when are we doing that? Because my brother or my sister tells me that's what you do in PE. Yeah. Well, those sayings are really powerful. I mean, in terms of what can be done because of expectations, and the doings are really important. So, if, you know, if the way that PE is done, if it's about local sport, if it's about beating local schools, which may be more prevalent in the in the in in the UK than the US, but if you take varsity sport and those those leagues are really important, beating your local rivals is massive mm -hmm. in terms of those. As undertaking, and those doings are you know the what is actually taught, the way that you approach a lesson, the way that you go you go into it, and then the 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 relatings is the way that power operates within the pro, within the, within a school or within a district. So, I'm also working with some schools in South Leicestershire. And that's really interesting in terms of the different environments that they have. When you talk about the school that gets 120 down, there are schools that we're talking to, I've been talking to, who get 120 children down, maybe. But 60 of those are 15 to 16-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And 40 of those are 11 to 12-year-olds. Yeah. And they're supposed to teach those groups <clears throat> simultaneously yeah. They're supposed to be in the same spaces. They're supposed mm -hmm. to be taught, get changed. And there's all sorts of Interesting. challenges. And the reason is that PE's timetable last. So, it, so when everybody else has a gap in the timetable, they go to PE. So what it creates is these anomalies around where the, where the kind of power and, and how it works within that area. If you have a head of PE... A former head of PE is now a head teacher or is now in charge of timetabling. PE tends to get looked after quite well and therefore yes. they're coming down at, at different times. So yeah. well, those whole kind of political relationships can be really, really significant. Um, and that, that kind of mix um, of different forces, I guess, is, is, is having a, kind of an influence on, on what's, what's done in physical education. Yeah. So you you uh, talked a little bit about the 2014 piece, Great White Hope or White Elephant, which was kind of the not your necessarily your first, but a you know really well cited paper, and a lot of people refer to it. Um, and you talked about non negotiables in there. And I know that in your in your book that you wrote with David Kirk recently that you've gone away from that term non negotiables. We talked about fidelity a little bit. So. Um, you you talked about moving towards aspirations. So where do you feel like we are now, or where is where is the theory research behind here, and where are we actually in like schools? Are we still at practitioners looking at 
if I don't hit these X steps, I am not doing sport education or is it, do you feel like people are moving towards understanding that their aspirations and the, I don't know if you want to call it watered down like Kurtner Smith and them, but like, where are we in that kind of balance of words, I guess? I guess it's, I mean, the first step to me on change is wanting to do something differently. Mm-hmm. That's an acknowledgement, you know, that cognitive dis- dissonance, there's something not right here, how do we make change? And what I've learned over the years is that teachers don't necessarily know. We all, many of us don't know what that change looks like. So we have this process of I want to change, but they don't know what that process looks like. They don't know what, 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 what things happen, how things happen. In re- reality, what does a lesson look like? You know, how can you even start to move towards that? And, and that's where I guess we need to be in terms of supporting teachers. So at that point, we're talking about, we were, we were at Bedford, there was several of us talking about models-based practice. I said there was myself, David Kirk, Vicky Goodyear, Steve Harvey. We were having conversations around what what we were looking at. We were trying to support teachers to use um, models-based practice, models, individual models. It wasn't models-based practice at that point. And, and it was how do we kind of make things important. So when I first used cooperative learning, I didn't do group processing. Mm-hmm. So I said, I, you know, kids talking to each other, like, I've got enough time in my lessons to do that. And I, I took it out. Yeah. And guess what we were trying to do at that point was say, well, you know, you do need to do this because all of this research suggests that actually giving the kids a chance to talk to each other and engage in a, that kind of dialogue and, and problem solve is really beneficial in terms of the way that they understand and the way that they learn. So the, non- the non-negotiables was a way that we used to kind of to, to say to teachers, well, try not, you know, or maybe don't, we say, but don't just discard these things. They're in there because they're useful and over, you know, a lot of research they've been shown to do be particularly useful in terms of the way that they understand. And that was about the time that the model fidelity stuff came out, which was Peter Hayti and I basically saying, you can't just write that you did sport education. You need to give the other researchers kind of an understanding that this is what you did. As a consequence of doing that, this is what we learn. And I guess those two non-negotiable model fidelity got picked up in different places in, in, in kind of different ways. So the model fidelity and the non-negotiable links quite closely to my Metzler stuff around blueprints. And you've got this whole kind of cast iron, this is the way it's going to go. And, and I guess that the, I was talking to um, Dylan Lundy um, a couple of days ago, and we were talking about this and it's it kind of picked up in certain places and that's how it was, that's how it was kind of developed. And we're kind of moving, very much moving away from that. So this notion of curriculum and specification. Mm-hmm. So not as, you know, so that these are the types of things you can do. This is what it looks like. These are examples. These, this is evidence to show that it works. And if you can work towards doing this, then that, that's a really positive thing. And these are the types of gains that you will get if you are able to, to adopt the process. But acknowledging the local context and why it's so difficult. Now, there's a paper coming out in... Um, Association for Pedagogy soon, which I was involved in, the kind of the editorial process, 
and it's a reflection on the messages coming out of models-based practice over quite a period of time. I'm, I'm used in that paper quite a lot, and I'm contradicting myself as I'm going through. I'm reading this paper going, yeah, but I said that there, and, and, and when each snippet is taken in isolation, I'm a, I'm really have kind of moved through different processes, and I think that's a really good thing, and it's, um, I don't think I'm stuck in, in my thinking and, and kind of developing those ideas, but, you know, I think early on, um, you know, um, I mean, one of the findings from, from Great White Hope, White Elephant, which was an absolutely bizarre way of writing a paper, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but I may have told you this before, but there was some quite watered down, those sorts of ideas weren't good. Te you know, teachers needed to be supported by universities and, and academics. Mm -hmm. Up to a point now where I actually think that if the only way for different approaches to be used is to be supported by academics, then, then you know, there aren't enough of us, there isn't enough time in the day for the teachers to be supported in every school to use these processes. So we need to think differently in terms of how we can help them to help how we can help them and i guess that shows the that evolution of the ideas it's okay. saying that these things are if used can generate and not will but can generate these these results and these outcomes and, right. and that's really important so in in our email communication back and forth you you talked about making us obsolete and and engaging practitioners can you talk about that because i and I agree with your stance of saying, you know, early on, if you want to run these models, you need to be supported by a university and we just, we just don't have the capacity and we don't have the time. And there's proportionally, there's just not enough faculty to go around. And so that model doesn't necessarily work. So what do you mean by like making us obsolete? Well, I guess that there needs to be a, a process so through teacher education through teacher development so not so lifelong learning through all those processes different approaches to teaching are um are, are you know kind of people are made aware of them and it's a it's a quite a difficult one because I, one of the arguments for multi-activity approach is that you teach kids lots and lots of different sports and, and hopefully somebody will pick up on something that they actually like and they'll adopt it but i don't want to place where i'm saying well we teach teachers about lots of different ways of teaching and hopefully they'll find the one that they like because that kind of scat that uh, that scattergun effect is there's no depth in, in terms of, of how that works but if we got into a room and um so if there was myself margaret you know margaret whitehead um it was uh, Tim Fletcher, and we can go on in terms of, you know, and we all said, well, this is physical literacy. Oh, it was um, Brendan and, and um, Bill, uh, uh, Shane, sorry, sorry, Shane, um, Bill even. Um, and, and they're saying, well, this is the spectrum, and this is meaningful PE, physical literacy, and, and this is yeah. meaningful PE, and this is models-based practice. Now, either if we line all those up, either we're all right or we're all wrong, or one of us is right and three of us are wrong, or, mm -hmm. you know, there's that kind of process. It's, well, what does this mean? And actually, we need to get into a position where 
teachers are educated about these and be, can, can begin to make choices about what they want to do and that they can find enough about this without having to knock on somebody's door and saying, can you, can you help me out? So I said, I'm working with a school in locally, well, it's been an hour of here, who contacted me and said, we want to adopt a models-based approach to teaching. Um, and we're going to bring it into our entire Teach Day 3 curriculum. And I said, well, that's great, but you won't be doing that. You won't be doing models-based practice a year after you start because you'll hate it. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I said, well, to my advice would be to start in year seven, the 11 to 12 year olds, get your feet under the table, get staff used to it, get the kids used to it and kind of bring that through over a three to five year period. And they're in year one. And what I've tried to resist, and I think I've done fairly well is I haven't provided any lesson plans. I haven't provided any materials. I haven't done anything bar be a critical friend mm-hmm. and I'm also researching it to see what happens so how do you adopt a model space approach I've interviewed staff I've been in done focus groups interviews and, and done some lesson observations and I'm just interested in how the process works without me now you could argue that had they not they could have done this completely without me and I would never right. have known about it but then I wouldn't be able to kind of inform the field and that process of how do you how do they do it themselves? Can they access the resources that are out there? And I got an email from the head of PE um, a couple ago yesterday, actually saying, "Could you recommend any teaching and understanding resources?" Mm-hmm. And I just said, "Go to tgfu.info mm-hmm. and have a look there. And if you need any more help, then give me a shout." But very deliberately trying not to say, well, here's a really good, here's a really good lesson plan. Here's a really good idea that I use. These are the ways that I did it. Yeah. That's kind of that critical friend, coach, mentor type thing without, right. don't want to put a label on it, but, and that's what I mean is I, it should be that if you, if you Google sport education, then there's a huge amount of resources. Now they might all be good resources, but right. It's trying to get to that point where we're talking to practitioners. And that's part of the reason why I've been putting together um, a series with Routledge on praxis. Mm-hmm. I wanted to call it the praxis series, but the Routledge says nobody knows what praxis means. So it kind of, <laughs> it was at a really good point at the end, but because then it wouldn't be what it needed to do. But yeah, it's kind of a praxis series. And, you know, how can we? explain these ideas in, in, in language that's accessible in ways that are accessible and then allow teachers to be able to discover and use these things in ways that don't require us to be there. So are there enough resources for people, for practitioners who don't pay for university you know, library access? Are there enough free resources that are quality to be able to do that and and who's putting those up are we just relying on practitioners to spend their own money and their free time to host a website and post videos and blogs and things like that yeah i mean i, I think there, there 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 is a, a lot of information out there and the quality is 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 always that, that question isn't it mm-hmm. um and <clears throat> There's an assumption I think 
sometimes the teachers are busy. I think that's a fair assumption, actually. <laughs> the teachers are very busy. Yeah. And they just grab the first thing they find mm-hmm. and they run with it. And I'm less and less convinced that that's the case, that actually teachers are very, are becoming increasingly good at finding stuff and then modifying it. I think it still happens. I think people pull lesson plans off various things and you see tweets saying, I'm teaching so-and-so tomorrow, can somebody send me a lesson plan? And I suspect that those lessons don't go particularly well. Right. Because they're not adapted. But some of the research that I'm involved in with um, masters and, and PhD students looking at how teachers use social media suggests mm-hmm. that they're, some of them are very discerning and they're spending a lot of time taking ideas and then tailoring them for where they are. So I think those resources can be really useful, almost thought process or stimuli or, or something. I mean, the book that I found the most useful for learning how to teach for understanding was um, Mitchell Griffin um, and Oslin's book on, on um, I've got a third edition on my shelf here, Teaching Sports Concepts and Skills. The ones that's like very thick book, big, big one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I yeah. found that to be really, really, really helpful as well. And it's as a, as a new print edition, it's a, it's a big book, but it's also very expensive. So like I, yeah. I hesitate. I mean, we have a field invasion games class that I teach and I hesitate making that a mandatory book. Although, it well, is a book I'm with that... you. I yeah. I have no mandatory. I try to have no mandatory text on the PGC. Yeah. Because I bought books for my degree that I never used, and mm-hmm. I just felt that they were. So we don't have. Yeah. If the library hasn't got it and they can't access it that way, then it doesn't fit on. Yeah. Um, and I just found it really useful myself. I did buy myself a copy because I found it really useful and it was a really easy way to take ideas and translate them in from um, I guess translate them is a really good a good way so when I first started using models I basically everything I did went onto worksheets so there was a kind of a translation process between this is the way I think as a command style do as I do. And I was really examining a PhD, um, PhD in, in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago, and um, with a student, then uh, used well used a quote that said, "Do before uh, do as I do pedagogy." And I thought that was really good. So that do as I do pedagogy, mm-hmm. and I translated it into. Um, Adaptive learning or teaching games for understanding, and that book really helped me to do that. And that was a term I kind of started to come up with the notion of pedagogical fluency. So, it's like language: the more the more fluent you become, the less you have to translate. And I think a lot of that early stuff is translation. It goes onto worksheets, and I see that replicated in quite a lot of situations. So, the school I'm working with, lots of stuff is on worksheets, yeah. and I think that's a form of kind of. I've got my teaching done, it's on the sheet, and I can now use this to support myself and the students. And that's what that book really helped me to do, was kind of to have that 
okay, so that's what it looks like. That's what it might feel like. Um, and those sorts of resources are really useful. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So where, where do you stand on just overall like, meaningful PE or Mawson's teaching spectrum? Some <laughs> lists, when you look at like, here are the lists of models. And like, do you feel like meaningful PE, Mawson's teaching spectrum, are they included in those models? Are they not? Are they, do they have the same aspirations? Like where, where does that stand? Because I know that's kind of a messy, sticky situation. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting is that, I know David Kirk had a conversation with Margaret Whitehead about the positioning um, physical literacy as a pedagogical model. Yeah. Margaret was quite resistant to that. Mm -hmm. um, Tim Fletcher and I have had conversations about he's adamant or they're adamant. Sorry, there's not Tim's work on his own. There's many other others involved in that, that it's not a model. And yet I can see so many aspects of it that could be. Yeah. Um, you know, part of this conversation originated from um, the spectrum conversation that you were having. Yeah. And why, um, <clears throat> why the spectrum is being missed out of models. <clears throat> and I don't ever remember a conversation where the spectrum was deliberately missed out. Mm -hmm. um, I just kind of felt that it, it kind of, it, it was never positioned by, by Metzler, never positioned by anybody as a model. It was, it was, to me, it, it was more of a kind of, an, that kind of approach, um, but I can also see some of the, the things. So what David and I did 2020 was we looked at a micro meso and, and, and micro lookout models and tried to look at, well, if we retrofitted all of these to a single process, mm -hmm. what would it actually look like? And this is when we came up with the idea that there's, every model has a main idea. Every model has critical elements, learning aspirations, and our pedagogy changes in terms of teaching, learning, curriculum, assessment, and they all have yeah. different, they're all different in the way that they approach those four things. Mm -hmm. So if you take the main idea, I think the main idea of meaningful PE is meaningful experiences. And that to right. me is a main idea and that's right. where you could position it there. There are critical elements. There are, there are five, I think there are five, can't name them, sorry, but mm -hmm. there are five areas that kind of fit into that. And there are learning aspirations. So you could look at um, meaningful PE and you could retroact retroactively, retrospectively <laughs> fit those ideas to it. Right. You could do the same with the spectrum and you could do the same with, and that's how they could fit into a models-based approach. Um, and a models-based approach is, is that whole curricular approach teaching so we're we're not looking just at skills we're looking at effective learning we're looking at personal social responsibility mm -hmm. so it's kind of determined what what you want the young people to learn and and, and then how that works and then then being reactive and proactive in terms of how you fit that into the local context so um i did look at it i mean i really i really enjoyed this the spectrum conversations that you were having um the notion of the toolbox was quite interesting 
Um, I know that you had um, quite enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And then I was reminded of, uh, so there's a, there's a great quote with regards to tech, 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 technology, sorry. And I was reminded of this, so I've used this quote before in when I'm talking about how you use technology in PE. And it kind of struck me with this toolbox idea is that um, somebody goes into a hardware store to buy a drill. They don't want a drill, they want a hole, but they don't sell holes in the hardware store. Mm-hmm. They have to buy a drill mm-hmm. in order to make a hole. Um, and I guess that whole analogy is that the toolbox is useful for what it achie- allows you to achieve, not for the toolbox in and of itself. Right. So what does sport education allow you to achieve? What does meaningful PE allow you to achieve? What does physical literacy allow you to achieve? And how can we utilize those outcomes which are bespoke to the local context mm-hmm. to better educate the young people in our care? And then when you're dividing, designing a model-based curriculum, you're thinking about what the outcomes are and which tools best fit those outcomes. And, and Shane was saying that the... the the, the, the tip of the sphere, I think is what you said, mm-hmm. could be the tip of the sphere, I can't remember. Yeah. I've written sphere down, I think it might be sphere. The, the, must, the spectrum could be the tip of the sphere, that's the bit that actually engages. But equally, I think that meaningful PE could be the tip of the sphere. I think that it's literally be the tip of the sphere. Yeah. So that's, to me, personally, why I guess the spectrum hasn't fitted into model-based um, work. But I'd love to have a conversation with with Shane, I have had a conversation with with, um, with Brendan when the paper came out because I really enjoyed reading it and looking at how those interconnections. And it was just something that I never thought of. <laughs> it wasn't a deliberate choice not to do it. It was just it hadn't occurred because right. no one had ever made that connection before. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important. I do have. If I have voices before, I, I am a little bit concerned about hybridization as a, as a term. And I think we need to do some real work on hybridization. And, what are and you... I think the hybridization of sport education and the spectrum, it has, or teaching it from there on the spectrum, mm-hmm. there are, it's not, a, it's not a nil sum. It's not a, it's not a win-win situation. I think we need to be very mindful of what actually happens in hybrids. Do you mean like as in TPSR and sport education as a hybrid model as a as a delivery? Or do you mean using spectrum in there? Well, you could use either. So, yeah, you could use either. I mean, the hybrids in models-based practice, I, I think we need to be very careful of. Because you look at the work of Barry Gordon in, in New Zealand. He's done some excellent work around hybridization. And he basically says that there is... When you put two models together, there is a dominant model and a non-dominant model. Mm-hmm. And there might be two equal models, but in a given taught situation, one model's outcomes have precedent over the other. Yeah. So the competition, cooperation kind of, you know, situation. Now, in order to have competition, co- competition is a cooperative endeavor. You have to agree to play by the same rules. You have to agree to work in certain ways. So 
there's, and we miss a lot of that in the in the competition literature is that actually the not the literature in the actual competition is that cooperation is really important in that process but at some point there are decisions that have to be made and what gordon suggests what what it's great having a stutter isn't it what barry suggests is that you need to make those decisions a little bit earlier so in this situation where is the where where is the the thing that we're we're going to Mm -hmm. highlight when you put two models together in their entirety there's going to be things where they are in competition with each other and things that don't necessarily work Mm -hmm. and actually i've argued with David and, and we talked about this in, in the book that, that these could actually be more of compositions. So when you make a composite, if you say, I've always said the analogy of a composite longbow and one of my favorite genres of reading is fantasy fiction. So a composite longbow is a, a strong wood against a flexible wood, which creates a more powerful thing. And, but they're laid next to each other. Composites are obviously laid next mm-hmm. to each other. Well, a hybrid is um, you know, is actually the complete joining of two things. Right. You know, almost at a level of D, of, D, of DNA. Mm-hmm. Now, great examples of hybrids are Sport for Peace, Kathy Ennis's work yeah. with colleagues. Um, the stuff that Sean was talking about, Shane was talking about. Sorry, um, with sport literacy, it's that's a, something that is actually to me a hybrid, where the ideas have come together, but they've created something new. Mm-hmm. I'd be really interested to know what the hybrid of the new thing that's created from TPSR and sport education. Right. And what that looks like and how it works and what are the yeah. aspirations and how it works in practice and the learning outcomes. And yeah. that's, and that's one of the things too, like <clears throat> I think sometimes, you know, practitioners, researchers get stuck in, let's let's like actually like pull off this sport education unit or this tpsr unit and you're so stuck in making sure that the unit is working and you're doing all of the steps that you kind of forget about the learning outcomes of like why did you go in there in the first place what were you trying to do with sport education or cooperative learning did you just try to hit those four or five steps that you had to have but did the students actually learn and did they improve or did they get the goal of, of those, of that unit? Yeah, Michaela Kavanagh and I wrote a paper using John Dewey and cultured learning. And we're having this idea of, well, what, what does this actually look like when you put the cooperative learning processes alongside John Dewey's work, which we then discovered that some of the basis of cooperative learning is John Dewey's work. Mm-hmm. It's got, it got kind of crowded out, I guess, a little bit by <clears throat> social interdependence theory and um, Bush's work and, and everything. So what does it actually look like? And we came up with these theoretical ideas and then I sat down, we sat down, well, actually we sat down virtually, in this case we sat down face to face. I'm saying, right, so what does this look like in practice? Because yeah. if we can't imagine what it looks like in practice, that it's a this paper is just for four people in the world. Yeah, yeah. these ideas aren't aren't, for, aren't fit for purpose. If if the between the two of us 
having proposed this, we can't come up. And I think sometimes with theories, we need to take those next steps. So these are theories are great, but what do they look like in practice? Mm-hmm. We sat down and we had those. We came up with some ideas. And then I was at the phase conference in Hong Kong. Must have been 2019. And I signed myself up to do a workshop on Dewey and cooperative learning. And that was the best thing, one of the hardest things I had to think about, but one of the best things I did, because it kind of really opened my eyes. Okay, so I proposed this theoretically. We've given some examples, but I'm now going to try to teach. Yeah, in public, in front of people. In public. Yes. What does it look like? That Mm -hmm. was a real, and I had to, I I could prepare for it, but I couldn't actually plan it because I'm, cause it needs to be reactive with what's happening in that space. And what I came to realize is that you need to, if you're teaching cooperation, how do you value cooperation? Mm-hmm. So how many times would you, when you were a teacher, did you stop a lesson to say, stop, everyone stop. So the way that you supported and the way that you worked with, right. with Ash was brilliant. Well done. Even when the guy's doing a fast break and about to slam, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you don't stop the lesson and go, well, that was, I, I don't care what's happening. I, I do care, but I, I'm actually really interested in what's happening over here. Right. It's midair, you know, backflip, all that sort of stuff. But we don't. We would say, oh, that's a great pass. That's a fantastic. And the, the things that we are valuing in that lesson are not there. So we were, in that lesson, we were stopping to say, that's a really good movement off the ball. You weren't rewarded by it, but that was a really good movement off the ball. The suggestion that you gave was... Ri- so we in that session, we're trying to look at mm-hmm. almost anything but the skill. Yeah, interesting. The, the vehicle was the... the, the, the well, it, it, was, it was a passing game. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a game, but it was a passing. But the outcomes were very much around processing individual accountability yeah. and those are the things that we were I was trying to reward and that's you know that's I'm not saying that we lose the physical at all because I think you can make connections the way that you moved off the ball created a space for that player to do that right yeah rather than you did really well mm-hmm so, so we're nearing nearing an hour, if not over, and I, I think we could probably go a second one. But um, let me. I, I have two kind of overall questions for you. One, if someone's interested in trying a new model, they haven't done it. They've listened to a couple podcasts. They've watched some videos online. They've gone in and dabbled in it. They learned the theory in undergrad, but they haven't actually pulled it off what would you suggest for them to start with? Like how, what are the steps? And I know, I know that you're talking, uh, or you're doing that research project with that uh, local school, but like if it's an individual teacher, what's the process? Where, where would they go? I guess it's, I mean, I get approached by former students all the time and actually them coming back to me and saying, you know, I've been really interested in this. So, so, and I'm trying to say that you don't need to rely on um, 
you don't need to rely on faculty, but we're talking about individuals. So who are the people around you who can support you? Mm-hmm. Um, now that might be, you know, from your podcast, there might be some links to some things that, that you're creating that kind of opportunity to, these are the next steps that you might take. Um, some of the, this, you know, getting hold of a term and, and kind of searching it can be really useful, trying to try to get hold of different individuals. Is there anyone else, you know, do you have a national PE association? Do you have a, a regional PE association? Is there somebody you can reach out to and say, you know, I'm really interested in these ideas? Um, most academics are very kind of, res- you know, responsive mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, even just sharing a, a paper or an idea or, or, whatever you know people ask me well where's a good where's a good way of getting into this and i've written pieces particularly for practitioners who who i that i can share quite quickly and, and those things can happen um i think the other thing to do is you kind of pause and think about well where could i do this where where is this i really like this idea where could i do it where's the best fit for this process and sometimes that best fit is just with the nicest class you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Because you're learning to teach in a new way, they're learning to learn in a new way, and that's certainly what I did. I went, I went easy mm-hmm. when I started. The flip is to that is to find the class that you cannot engage with in the way that you're teaching at the moment. Absolutely, for love and money, we've all taught them. You've got real barriers, there are individuals, there are groups of individuals, there's biography, there's history, whatever it is. So what you're already doing doesn't work. Right. So why not try something differently? Right. Don't keep trying the same process. Doing it for 10 minutes is absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Don't don't bite off more than you can chew. Right. My biggest piece of advice to pedagogical change is start, I started with one class and I learned how to do something differently with one class. Then it became a whole year group. Then it became a whole key stage. Then it became and so much of my teaching. But that took me a long time to get to that process. Mm-hmm. Trying to change everything at once is the quickest way to just going back. It's like a New Year's resolution. And you hit the gym six times a week for three, four weeks. And then it becomes, are you, you stop eating everything that you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you're going to, you know, that's going to go. So right. it's, it's those changes. So it's those small steps. Um, you know, reach out to people. Um, but don't just put it on a shelf. Right. Yeah. So my last question to you is, you you have a lot of um, association with the PESP journal. You have the book series by Routledge. Um, you publish a lot. You read a lot. So I feel like you have a finger on the pulse of research. So what research are you excited about whether that's your own projects coming up or things that you've read that seem to be kind of moving in some direction and it could be anything what are what are some things that you're kind of seeing out there that excite you i think the stuff that's exciting me is the is the kind of um the the anti-racist, the inclusive, the socially just, the, the, those sorts of 
that work. Mm-hmm. It's challenging work. It's difficult work. We need to be more and more aware of it. Um, and I've spent some like, some time trying to trying to engage with the, these ideas and, and acknowledging that I am a you know white European male middle class education and all the privileges that I come with. Um, and it's looking around our communities and saying, well, where are where are we not seeing things? Where are we not oh, even aware of them? Mm-hmm. And and one of the examples is that I've seen recently is in in in, in conferences or in, in in things where we're seeing really good, really forward thinking, really nice men. <laughs> putting loads of work in and, and you, you've got to lord and celebrate that but we, sometimes we have to look at these the things that we see and actually recognize what is there and these are some difficult conversations and yeah. and, and i'm trying to manage these myself um it's acknowledging the voices that are missing right absolutely and it and and you know trying to create spaces ourselves um it's stepping away from conferences that create opportunities for other voices to be heard. It's, it's talking to organizers about the voices that are being privileged and the voices that need to be, to be heard before you even get as you say, well, you know, yes, I'm, I'd love to speak. I think it's a really good idea, but how are you addressing, you know, issues of social justice? How are you including other voices? How are you, you doing that? And, and in the way that we, we cite work. We need to be looking at the voices that are missing and the voices that are absent and be very mindful and meaningful in our in our in our responses. So that's the that's the work that has really stood me up to say, Yeah, you're not so good at this, Ash. Yeah. You need to you need to be better. Um and you you have a position of privilege yeah um how can you use the voice and your privilege in order to to open up opportunities for other people to not be a voice because other voices are much better at saying the thing right sometimes it's being quiet yeah and it's listening and so to me that's the that's the the stuff that we need to engage is far more than we do yeah. and I need to do it much more and, and I need to know how to supportively work with people and help them to do it as well. Yeah. Um, and I think it's sometimes like yeah. being cognizant of like who, who are you elevating and who are you bringing up and helping out. And, and I know that, you know, in the very beginning of the podcast, like, just based on who I was bringing on, you know, I had a really good friend say, do you realize that you've only had like only this type of scholar on? And I was yeah. like, no, and no, I didn't realize it was just like, these are the papers that are coming up. These are the people who I associate with. And you know, they were, and our field is mostly like white, a lot of male, like, and so, you know, this, this, this critical friend what kind of opened me up and being more mindful of who I'm reaching out to. And, you know, I think ISEP does a good job of this and they're like developing country scholars 
of bringing people in from non-traditional, non-English like as a, as a first language countries and bringing them into ISEF because there's, there's a lot of good research in Portuguese. There's a ton of good research in Spanish. And so trying to like expand in that way. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that's where you went with that. It was, a uh, I think you're spot on. And I, and I think throughout the last hour or so we've covered a ton of, ton of ground. And I think you're right that these kind of collaborative conversations with different points of view, uh, like that models conversation we had probably a, hundred episodes again was really interesting and one of the top downloaded podcasts that we've had it was because scholars and people are just interested of what other people are thinking and sometimes the writing is is slow one paper comes out people start mulling about it they do a research project they answer your question two years later in in a research paper so but ash thanks Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, always a good, always good to talk, and, and um, it's writing is a challenge because you have one go. You have to try to get those ideas, and it can become quite. It's a point in time, mm -hmm. and those that paper that's coming out in PESC was a real eye opener for me in terms of how that dialogue changed. A conversation is, is, is so much better. We just need to talk to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I'd like to talk to people who are, are interested in challenging what physical education looks like, but not being blinkered by the, I don't think that model space practice is the only way. I think it's a way, and I think there are some real positives that you can do, but I think there are real positives elsewhere. And it's, it's how do we kind of present ideas to teachers and give them the strength and the autonomy to make those changes themselves. And that's why I want to make this obsolete in their classroom. Yeah. I don't think ever we should do a research study where a researcher goes into a classroom and takes over from the teacher. Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. But, but yeah. yeah, we could go on, as you said, let's not yeah. go into the second half. All right, thanks, Ash. <laughs>